Um, we are getting into our Bible reading for this morning. Uh, we are going over the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3, verses uh, 23 to 25. And we're going to continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans. And uh, here at Corner Canyon Church, we are a Bible-preaching church. We go verse-by-verse through the Bible. We don't skip over verses, even the tough ones. So we go through all the Word of God because we think all of the Word of God is important for us as Christians impacts our life. It grows us to be more like Jesus. Um, so we want to go have all the word of God, all of its important. As Paul said, the blood was not on his hands because he got to preach the whole counsel of God. So we have the whole counsel of God. And we also have an Old Testament reading, which points uh, to the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's inspired by the same God. And so the Old and New Testament go together. And so for our Old Testament reading, we have Isaiah. Yet he opened up his not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that was before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And that concludes our Old Testament word from God. Now, our New Testament, uh, Romans 3 23 through 25. We are just making our way through the book of Romans here. Uh, Hear now God's perfect, holy, inerrant word. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. And that concludes the reading of our New Testament word from God. Let's pray that God would specially anoint, bless the preaching of his word, and that we would be growing more like Jesus as we hear his truth this morning. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your word, thankful for your truth that is a light into our feet. And God, I pray that if there's somebody here who doesn't know you or has not trusted and embraced you as their Lord and Savior of their life, I pray that they would do so this morning for eternal life to know you, Lord, the living and true God, Lord Jesus. So may you be glorified, may you be exalted, and may we as a church storm the gates of hell by the beautiful proclamation of the gospel and that the gospel would go from land to land and sea to sea and the knowledge of the earth of the Lord would be as abundant in the earth as the water is in the seas, as the prophet Isaiah says. And as your word goes forth this morning, Lord, may it not go may it not become back void but as your word says it comes back with something your word always accomplishes it uh, accomplishes something even when we don't feel like it even when we're having off days and we're tired your word works deep into our hearts and so lord we we pray that your word would impact us and grow us to love you and serve you more jesus christ 
It's in your holy and precious name we ask all these things. Amen. So what happened, I think, is about three years ago, I was preaching a pretty well-known passage, John 3.16. That's the one verse I, I think almost everybody knows. If you don't, that's okay. But, I mean, it's at baseball games. People always hold it up. And so it was around Christmas time three years ago, and, you know, I was teaching, you know, that salvation is in Christ, that whoever believes in him shall not uh, perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world. You know the, you know the thing, um, John 3.16. And so in that, in that sermon, uh, I talked about, you know, what it meant for the Father to send the Son to die for our sins, talked about the justice of God being satisfied by Jesus coming and dying for us and by believing on him having eternal life. And I can remember preaching this sermon, and, you know, it's just one of those days where you just feel off. I felt off. I felt like everybody else felt off. And the expressions were pretty low on people's faces, like, you know, I just felt not good that day. And thinking, gosh, this is going to be a pretty, you know, this is, I, I was hoping to be a great sermon and kind of like, I felt like lowered expectations a bit, right? Um, and to make things worse, I'm just being honest, there was a guy when I was preaching this, I kid you not, this guy was in full sleep mode. I mean, I was just like sitting here and the guy's like nodding off. I mean, I have never seen someone sleep so much through my sermon. And I've seen a lot of people, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but I was like, oh my gosh, this guy's getting a full course nap here, you know? And I was like, man, this, this is kind of turning, <laughs> makes me feel like it's a snooze fest. But, you know, at least he got, you know, some, must, some much needed rest, that guy, um, through my sermon. And, you know, I just, I just felt bad. And so, you know, you think sometimes as a pastor, maybe the sermons, maybe the word is not doing anything. You lack faith as we all do. We struggle, all of us. And so, uh, but we did have a visitor come that Sunday. They filled out a visitor card. Hey, you know, and so uh, I did my, my thing and I reached out to them. Thanked them for visiting and asked them if they had any questions and everything. And sure enough, this young lady emailed me back. And this doesn't happen all the time, but she emailed me back with this question about the John 3.16 sermon. She said, thank you for reaching out. It was a great meeting you and listening to your sermon. I have a question on the sermon itself, and I apologize for asking questions, as I have not been in church for 20 years precisely due to these questions. But I'm starting to recognize the importance of providing a moral framework to children. It appeared to me the center of your idea that God's Son was an outlet for his need to mete out justice, but does not shifting the punishment to some innocent bystander, namely Jesus, negate the whole justice aspect of it? And so this person, had, you could tell, hadn't been to church for 20 years, and you know, no, no one had been able to answer her questions. She, she had been um, frustrated by this, understandably so. And so um, I do believe this shows us as Christians that we as a people, we need to know not only what we believe, but why we believe it. So we can help people who are having struggles, doubts, and we, we can be a safe place, not a place of like judgment, but a safe place for people to ask tough questions and expect, you know, humble, gentle, careful, intelligent answers to help them work through things, to help them process things, right? I love the way that Machen puts it in just this encouraging idea of why we should be thinking about 
about not only what we believe, but why we believe it. He says, false ideas are the greatest obstacles to the reception of the gospel. We may preach with all the fervor of a reformer and yet succeeding in only winning a straggler here and there. If we permit the whole collective thought of a nation to be controlled by ideas which prevent Christianity from being regarded as any more than a harmless delusion. This is in many post-Christian countries. We see that. So what she was referring to uh, was this idea that, you know, God punishing Jesus, getting back to her question, God punishing Jesus for the sake of justice and how that act can be in and of itself just. I mean, punishing somebody that's innocent um, out, of, out of justice, that's not right for anybody. That's, not, that's unjust for any, anybody, especially when we're talking about God. God is an infinitely perfect being, and so how can he punish somebody who hadn't sinned? Um, and there have been some that denied that this even happened, that God in no sense of the word uh, punished Jesus. And some of these people, you know, they've misunderstood the classic Christian doctrine, the evangelical doctrine, and I've heard them say that the, uh, the cross is like, uh, kind of like divinely mandated child, cosmic, kind of cosmic child abuse um, sanctioned by the divine. And so this has been something that has been in the culture, has been talked about at churches, and people struggle with this. And what we're going to see here in Romans chapter 3 is that Paul explains the atonement of Christ in a way that helps us answer these questions, and I hope to share how I answered this young uh, lady's questions, how I attempted to answer her, her questions about three years ago on this very topic. So, Romans uh, 3, 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, so no one's like perfect, except Jesus. Um, Hebrews says that, uh, that he was without sin, so we know that, and we're going to see that again said in these scriptures. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Now, the word for justify in Greek is dikaiao, which is to declare righteous. It doesn't mean to make you righteous. It means that God, even though you're sinful, sees you, and, and even though we fall short, he sees us and declares us righteous. As in a courtroom, that's kind of the context where this word is used very often. His grace is a gift, so salvation is not earned, achieved, or merited. It is gifted to us. We just believe and receive, like you would a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So redemption here is, can be used for slaves, freeing them and paying off. But it always has this idea, because it can be used in different contexts, it always has this idea of something costing something to be free. Or to, to, in order to re receive something, it had to come at some cost. And the cost was, of course, Jesus Christ. He suffered for us. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Hold on to that word, propitiation. It's, a, it's not a very common word, so we're going to look at it. By his blood refers to his death. It's just kind of like an expression that he died, right? To be received by faith. That's the instrument by which we receive the gift of salvation, by, by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So after when Josh preaches, I'll be going over this passage in more detail talking about were the Old Testament saints saved? How, how were they saved? Kind of d discussing that.
Propitiation, according to the Merriam-Webster dictionary, is to uh, gain or regain the favor of or uh, favor or goodwill of, and they have this word kind of clarifying APs, APs, and it lists the word as APs as uh, as just so you know we get a clear idea of what APs is because it's part of the definition of propitiate is someone who's disapproving to make someone pleased or less angry or or by giving them or saying something desired. So in other words, doing or giving something to make someone favorable towards you and no longer angry towards you, kind of shifting the tide. They were mad at you, now they're not because you've done something to appease them. And so when you read that in light of Romans 3, what it is saying is that God put forward Jesus and his death on the cross to so that we can regain favor with him, he not be angry at us. So in some sense, Jesus appeases God for us. Now, I realize this is kind of hard. Um, people have struggled with this, struggled to, the, to digest the meaning. How does this work out? And I'm going to try to, as I say, to answer all those questions the best I can uh, looking at it. But first, we want to get an idea. It's not enough to say, okay, the English word, the, the translators went with this English word, so let's just go with that. You see, the Bible was written in Koine Greek. It wasn't written in English or any other you know, language or King James English. It was written in Greek. And we know what the words mean because we are able to translate them just like we can translate pretty much any other language. And so that word that is used for propitiation has, it's a very multifaceted word. It has like numbers of meanings behind it that even relate to the Old Testament, which is really interesting. And so it's that word hilasterion. And uh, I'm just going to read to you how it means propitiation, but it also has this interesting deeper meaning um, referring to the Old Testament and everything. So it says, hilasterion, this is according to Thayer's Greek lexicon, a means of appeasing or expiating. Expiating is another big word. It just means taking away sins. And propitiation, of course, means uh, appeasing, turning aside someone's anger or wrath. So this is, it says, the well-known cover of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. So, you know, you see Indiana Jones or whatever, you know, you watch some cartoon. You have the Holies of Holies. Um, and you have this Ark of the Covenant. And you have, like, the cap on the Ark. Should have provided a picture, but you know what? I just... So you have, like, the cap on the Ark, and you have, like, the angels covering it. And you have the top that, that's below the angels, kind of with their wings over it. And, and in the middle of that is, is, is the, uh, the, 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 the kind of the seat of propitiation where they would you know, kill animal and they'd sprinkle blood there. And it was called the mercy seat. And so propitiation, this word hilasterion can mean mercy seat, that seat where they would sprinkle the, the blood of the animal sacrifices, uh, where the angels were kind of hovering over on the, the seat or the, uh, the cover or the, the top, I should say, of the Ark of the Covenant. And so uh, this is a ceremony that was used to appease the sins of the people, and it's called also the lid of expiation, propitiation, mercy seat. There's different, different elements to this. And of course, this is amazing because this shows us that Christ and the Old Testament sacrifices are not disconnected, but they're deeply connected because um, those sacrifices point to the finished work of Jesus. And so they are symbols of what is to come. And so that's why Paul uses this word mercy seat because he's saying Jesus is fulfilling the sacrificial system. And so the Old Testament points 
points to the death and the sacrifice of Jesus by this mercy seat in this holies of holies. Of course, Jesus was the most holy. So, but the thing is, is that when you look at Romans, you look at what people say. Um, scholars are pretty unanimous in this. When Paul was writing this letter, it wasn't to primarily a Jewish audience. It was to a Gentile audience, an audience of, of Greeks and everything. So when they would have heard that word, hilasterium, propitiation, they would have thought about Greek literature, which talked about you know a god, you know you doing something to turn aside the anger of a god. And so that's why most notable commentaries and the ESV translation goes with the word propitiation due to the context and background, rather than say you know emphasizing the mercy seat part of it. And you're going to find some disagreements in older lexicons and so on. Um, but what most scholars, well, I mean, what the top scholars would say is that is that the the meaning of propitiation is clear. This is how Douglas Moo puts it from his academic commentary in Romans. Which, by the way, I just was looking at. I found it out that he is rated. This is the best commentary in Romans. They have a rating system online, and I didn't know that, so I was pleased to find that out. That's the one I'm reading. So you're getting only with the best. Um, so he says um, when the when to the linguistic evidence we add the evidence of context of Romans 1 and 3, where the wrath of is the overarching theme, the wrath of God, the overarching theme, the conclusion that Hilasterion includes reference to turning away of God's wrath is inescapable. So he's saying, when you look at the context, the background, it is very clear that this is talking about turning aside God's wrath. And so this is something that when we look at the evidence, it seems like the, the Bible really uh, leads us in this direction strongly. And when you look at Romans, what we've looked at so far, it's, it's, it starts off with the wrath of God. Romans 1.18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is right after Paul gives the gospel. He tells us this, and then he goes into this wrath stuff to show this is a problem we have. This is the issue we have, is that we are alienated of God because we have committed cosmic sins and cosmic treason against our creator, and so we are, we are under God's wrath. We are in trouble. We need a solution in the gospel. It's interesting as you see that the issue of wrath coming up as a problem in every single chapter in the early chapters of Romans 1 through 2. In 2, you get wrath twice. Here's one reference to it, Romans 2, 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And so the wrath is mentioned here as a central issue, the problem that people have with God, the problem that God has with us, I should say more accurately. And it gets even clearer when you look at the solution part, because we're in the solution part right now. Romans 3, Romans 4, Romans 5, this is largely seen as kind of the solution to the problem of, okay, how do we escape God's wrath? We're in trouble here. We have sinned against an infinite being. We deserve an infinite punishment. How do we get out of this? And Romans 5, 9 makes it very clear that the death of Jesus turns aside the wrath of God. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, by his death, much more shall we be saved by his
Much of what I've seen in the millennials, my, my own uh, generation, is there's a great concern for justice in the world. We cry out against all the injustice that we see in society, in people, in the way people act. There's a lot of injustice, and there's just this, this, this reaction inside of us. This, that's wrong. That, there, there's got to be a meeting out. There's got to be an issue here. This, this is unjust. And so we ourselves have no right as people to avenge, get people back due to justice. We, you know, anything like that. But God does, according to Romans 12, 9. And so this is where God's anger is more complete and different than ours. It says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. We're not to be like, I don't know, like the Marvel character, the Punisher, you know, um, you're getting back people. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It's God who has that unique right as the Lord over the universe that has the right to, to, to really fix all the injustices and the final result. And so God being angry at sin means he has a perfectly just, rational, measured response to sin. It's not irrational. It's not crazy. And he punishes sin because it displeases him and it goes against his perfect and holy and just nature and so as a just being, he has to avenge sin or else it just is not just. It is not right. And so Jesus being the propitiation means Jesus on the cross took that justice, that wrath, that anger and punishment for our sins so that God himself would never punish us, that he would never be angry at us. As the hymn that I love in Christ alone on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And that is the heart, that's at the heart of the word of propitiation. Now, when people hear this, they say, golly, Nate, this is so, like, guttural, barbaric, and absurd. God doesn't need to punish sin. Like, God needs a pound of flesh for something? That's so archaic and silly. God is a God of love, you know? He's even more loving than Barney, whatever that means, right? And so he just can't, you know, forgive sin without, you know, he can just forgive sin without punishing it or without doing anything. He can just say, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. There's no, there's no punishment involved. You're just forgiven. How's that? And uh, we do serve an infinitely loving God. We never want to underestimate or depreciate the beauty of God's love. But because God is the greatest, he also must be perfect and infinitely just as well. And I have to tell you, if someone you know, murders your family, and some judge down there uh, you know, in the city just says, well, you know, yeah, you murdered a family, but I'm just going to let you go scot-free. We would call a judge like that unjust. But also, it's profoundly unloving just to let offenses go without any sort of justice. It's, it's not fair, we would say, if a just were to let go a murderer. So, so there's a connection between love and justice. To be unjust is to be also unloving profoundly. So they can't be like separated like, you know, in this way that our culture wants to do. To be unjust is to be unloving. 
It cannot be artificially separated like that whatsoever. But you look at the Old Testament, and it's just so mind-boggling. This riddle comes out in the Old Testament. How, and you have in one passage, the very same passage, you have it that God is so forgiving. So kind. His love, he just overlooks transgressions. And then the very next verse, it talks about him punishing sin. This is so interesting. It's like a riddle of the Old Testament here. Exodus 34, 7. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's the God we, we, we know we love so much. We love to hear about how our sins are forgiven. This is a great and beautiful thing. No matter what you've done, you can forgive your sins. But look at this next part here. This is what we're thinking is interesting. But who will by no means clear the guilty? I'm guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the father on the children's on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So this is amazing. The riddle of the Old Testament is you know, how can he be you know, just in punishing sin and yet at the same time forgiving and loving? How does this work out? And the answer is found in that word. And I say one of the most important words in the Bible, propitiation. Because you see, in that single word, you have the justice of God being meted out and manifested in, in Jesus being punished for our sins. And you have the love of God, Jesus, taking that intense and horrific punishment for us, suffering not for his own crimes, he committed no crimes, but for our crimes, so that God can be, at the same time, both loving and just. Now, I want to go back to the question the lady, young lady asked me about. And I want to read it just so we get an idea of what she's, we can keep it fresh in our minds. It says, it appeared to be the centered on the idea that God's son was an outlet for his need to meet justice, but does not shifting the punishment to an innocent bystander negate the whole justice aspect of it all? That's a good question. I've, I've thought about that myself. And so I, I kind of put my thoughts down, but... Here's a way to really formalize a concern to make it sharp so you know, like, this is an actual logical argument that can, someone can structure against the idea of Jesus being our substitute and taking the wrath of God. One, God cannot punish an innocent person. That seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? God cannot punish an innocent person. Jesus Christ was an innocent person on the cross. He'd never sinned. Therefore, God cannot punish Jesus Christ on the cross. That is a valid and sound argument. That goes through. So what's the issue? And so, you know, you can see like how this young lady was so struggling with this. And what I said is that the evangelical Christian response to this is to deny too. Yep. It's technically correct. Say, we want to deny. And just before you shut me off and think I'm crazy, hear me out here. We want to deny that when Christ was on the cross that he was an innocent person. I said he was sinless. Let's just fill this out here. Let's see what scripture has to say because scripture does teach while he was sinless, he'd never done anything wrong in his entire life. Nothing immoral, nothing untowards, nothing like that. On that cross, he was legally, forensically declared and viewed by God as wicked and guilty by God the Father on the cross. Our legal guilt, our shame, our guilt was passed on to Jesus Christ. He was viewed that way on the cross in a legal status. 
And the reason why I say this is because this occurs in Scripture, 2 Corinthians 5, 19-21. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That's how we know it's legal categories. You have trespasses. You have sins in your life. But they're not being counted against you because they're being counted against Jesus. It's a legal framework here in Scripture. Interesting message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on the behalf of Christ. We are to plead with people to come to Jesus. Be reconciled to God. For our sake, he, Jesus... Or he, the Father, excuse me. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin. So he made him to be sin legally. We know that's the case because he actually didn't know sin. He never experienced committing any sin. He was the perfect son of God, the spotless lamb. So he, the Father, made him to be sin. Who knew no sin so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. And so that means every wicked and evil thing you've ever done... That was viewed, that was taken, that was put upon Christ on the cross. And he was punished, that justice was satisfied. And this is just mind, just, it's unbelievable to me, just to think about how mind-blowing and shocking this is. Jesus was sinless, and he was treated even more guilty than I am, because it's not just my sins being transferred, it's all of your sins being transferred to him. Um, and we who are sinful are treated righteous because of his merit. His righteousness, his obedience. And people say, okay, so, Nate, why would God do that? <laughs> right? I mean, isn't that, just un isn't that just as unjust to make a sinless man guilty? Isn't that, Nate, aren't you just pushing the problem back one? Like you say, God can't punish an innocent person. Oh, so guess what? God just makes him guilty, you know, through a legal, you know, uh, reckoning here. I mean, that doesn't seem much better, does it? God can never make guilty or can transfer guilt or responsibility to an innocent person, ever. Ever? Really? Well, believe it or not, there are actually unique circumstances where it is not wrong to assign guilt to an innocent person. To respond, to respond kind of give them or assign them the responsibility of the guilt and everything. And I say this because um, imputing wrongdoing to innocent persons is actually a well-accepted feature of justice systems. And, um, you know, many secular philosophers grant uh, the idea of imputation and substitution. They grant that these are real things that occur. They happen in our legal system. Just to give you an example, if you're working for somebody, you're an employee, and you do something bad on the job, you mess up, you make damages or whatever it is, and you go to court, you, your employer can come if he wishes to take on, well on the job, the damages that you have. Objections that Jesus is like, you know, some innocent bystander. Well, that's not true. 
Jesus is God. He is Lord over all. He is not just some innocent bystander. He is our creator. He's responsible for us. And so if the creator of the universe is freely willing to take on my debt, my sin, and my guilt as his own choice, he chooses to do that for me, who am I to say, you know what, you shouldn't do that? Who am I to say that? I love how um, the great theologian and philosopher William Lane Craig puts it. He says, if an employer out of personal concern for his employees, wishes to act mercifully by voluntarily being held vicariously liable for his employees' wrongdoing, how is that unjust or immoral? In the same way, if Christ voluntarily invites our sins to be imputed to him for the sake of our salvation, what injustice there is uh, there in, oops, sorry, what injustice there in, in this? Who is to gangsay him? And so the whole reason why Jesus did this is so that he, he could save us, save us from the justice, from the wrath that we had coming to us, to satisfy justice. And um, who can save us from the wrath of God? Can a mere creature save you from the wrath of God? A finite creature, can, can he save you from the wrath of God? No, only God can save you from God. God is infinitely powerful. So there's no creature, no, none of us can save ourselves. Only God can save us. Only God can save you from God. Only another infinite person can save you from another infinite person. And I hate to break it to you, we are all, we are all finite. We all begin to exist. And so the only way we are ever going to be saved, the only possible way is for the Creator to take the debt on to Himself, to take on human flesh, to take on our predicament, to take on everything, all the pain and shame and suffering, all of our sins, to take that on. That's the only way we're ever going to be saved. And so it isn't just that Jesus saves. Jesus is the only way we could ever be saved. It is Christ alone because He is God Almighty. And so God, because he is loving, comes in the person of Christ and saves us. You see, we can't pay that debt. We can never pay that debt we have against God. We have sinned against an infinite being. We have an infinite death, an infinite punishment coming to us. And we as finite, sinful beings, we can't offer up any payment of an infinite debt. Try paying off an infinite debt. See how that goes. We have trouble making student loan payments these days. I mean, try an infinite debt against a, the, the creator of the universe. We cannot pay that. So the only way it is paid is if Jesus takes it on. That's the only way that debt gets, that's the only way the justice of God ever gets satisfied is by that infinite person, Jesus Christ, taking on our debts. So what God demands of us, He provides in Jesus Christ. Doesn't make us meet those demands because He loves us so much. He cares for you so much that He would do anything to be with you. Even suffering the greatest punishment and shame to be ever imagined. A shame and a punishment which we will never be able to comprehend even when we're in the new heavens and new earth and we're worshiping God and serving Him and loving Him for all eternity. We will never comprehend what Jesus went through because it was infinite. It was an infinite punishment and the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. That infinite punishment was condensed and consolidated and put on the shoulders of Jesus Christ on that cross. The greatest pain ever. Way worse than what you've seen visibly in the passion of the Christ, the whipping, 
the suffering of the nails, all that stuff is horrible, but nothing compares to the infinite wrath of God poured out on Jesus. And that is why Jesus screamed from that cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is amazing news for us practically because that means if you trust in Jesus Christ this morning, God's not angry at you. He's not mad at you as a judge, executionary, jury, whatever. He's not mad. And this needs to be said. Also, um, this view of the atonement has this, I've seen this misunderstanding happen so often. It's um, people have this idea, okay, God the Father, he's like this angry maniac and he wants to just wipe us out and Jesus...
next door is like it's like an email chain of endless you know great questions that she had, um, and then eventually she asked me for the evidence for the resurrection. And um, so I shared that with her, and um, three months later, she wrote me again, and she said something like this. She says, I want to let you know that last Sunday, my husband and I took communion for the very first time at church. Do not do so lightly. Take it, Christianity very seriously. And so I, I read that to my wife, who we was like <laughs> praising God and tearing up and thanking God for the amazing work that he had done in their lives. And what a beautiful thing to see the grace and salvation come to a family, you know, um, and, and just or uh, unfriendly to people who ask questions. Like, why are you asking questions? Stop asking questions. We should embrace people who ask tough questions. We should be willing to sit and listen to them in humility and have a conversation with someone who has doubts because you never know what it means to that person who is struggling. We never know what it means. And, um, and this is something the scripture commands us to do. I, the, I've you know, I forgot about this verse, but it, I brought it to my mind, I think, by God's providence this week. This is what Jesus' brother Jude wrote in verse 20. He says, but you, beloved, build yourselves up in the, your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And this is this point, verse 22. And have mercy on those who doubt. Not cast them out and say, oh, you're asking, you're struggling. Well, you must not be a Christian. We've got to kick you out or, you know, you can't ask questions here. You know, have mercy on those who doubt. And I think Jude reminds us to do this because church is not for people as much as we hear it in the culture or misrepresentations of it. A church is not for people who think they know everything, for people who think they have their act together, people who think they're righteous. It's for train wrecked sinners like you and me, who has struggles, who don't trust God sometimes, who have doubts, and who honestly want to seek answers and grow in areas. It's not for perfect people, it's for imperfect people who struggle, as we all do, struggle with faith. I, uh, this morning, um, true story, I felt horrible this morning. I just felt, I didn't feel like really getting up. I was so tired, um, just worn out from working and thinking about all sorts of things. And I just felt so heavy and burdened this morning. Uh, this morning, and I was <laughs> the craziest thing. I was driving to church, and I turned on Christian radio, and 
I've, I, it was like a song. It was um, Just Breathe, I think it is. And it, it, and literally every thought I had and every fear and worry and just how tired and burnt out I felt, all those thoughts, they, the song perfectly addressed everything I was feeling on the inside, almost like God was like talking to me. And I felt so comforted. And so we all struggle. We all have doubts. We all have bad days. And so let a, let a church, even for pastors, be for broken people who need the grace of Jesus. And let us magnify that grace even when people doubt, even when they struggle and they're going through hard times. Let us hold their hand and answer all of their questions the best of our ability with intelligent responses that show that we care. Let's pray.